The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. We are rightly worshiping Him in song before we turn to His Word to worship Him through the hearing, the receiving of, of His Word, especially this morning as we focus upon His Word incarnate, the, the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the Gospel of the the, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, chapter 4, into chapter 3, really chapter 4, 1 through 11, will be our focus for the morning. If you want to open up the Word of God uh, to Matthew chapter 4, we are walking verse by verse through this gospel learning. For some, maybe for your first time, for many of us, learning afresh and anew of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We turn our attention now or of this gospel to what is called the temptation of the Christ, temptation of the Lord Jesus, a three-part temptation to turn against the will of his Father and take things into his own hands, so to speak, fulfill his own power apart from the will of the Father, and by doing such, he would be sinning against the Father. He would be Forsaking the will of the Father, the providential care of the Father. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan using Scripture here, a misuse of Scripture rather. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Our focus for the morning is really just on one verse, verse 1 introducing of the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, you know, when you were with us last week, we looked to the ending of chapter 3, which speaks of the baptism of the Lord Jesus. The, the, the Lord Jesus publicly identified himself in the place of sinners as he was baptized in a sinner's baptism by John the Baptist, who was proclaiming a message of repent and confess your sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes up as he's baptizing sinners and tells John, it must be so to fulfill all righteousness that you baptize me. And it was a vivid picture 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very reason for which he came to take the place of sinners, to enter into those baptismal waters as a picture of even that baptism of death that he would endure at the end of his ministry there, hanging upon a cross to give his life a ransom for the sins of his people. And as Jesus is baptized and came out of the water, you can reread the ending there, the last two and 17, but the heavens opened. As Jesus came up out of the water and the Spirit of God, it says, descended upon the Lord Jesus and alighted upon Him. It dwelt upon the Lord Jesus and a voice thundered from heaven. of God, thundering from the heavens, spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A validation of Jesus' divine Sonship, that He truly is the Son of God. And even the blessing of God, the happiness of the Father that was upon him because of his obedience to enter the place of sinners, the recognition even by the Lord Jesus that this was the mission that he was commissioned to fulfill that would be fulfilled there at the cross at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life. This is a a climactic moment. Even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's often used as a marking for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And one would think, following such a spiritual, momentous occasion as the baptism of the Lord Jesus, what we would read next would be surely the calling of the disciples immediately following this. And he would go and call these men who would leave and forsake everything to follow this one who is the Son of God incarnate. Or maybe we would find following immediately this Jesus delivering a great message, a great sermon that amazes the crowds with the profound wisdom and teaching, as he will do, where they say, only the Son of God could have such a... Or maybe he should perform some miracles as he comes up to further authenticate his power over everything, over sin and death and the grave and illness and, and heal some blind people and some lame people, make them walk, and all of that is to come. But if we weren't so accustomed to our reading of the gospel, we would stand in a little bit of shock when following this great momentous occasion of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and this voice thundering from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descending upon the Son of God, we would think some of these great events should follow, and yet we read in verse 1, then, immediately following this baptism and this proclamation of God's pleasure with His Son, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want us to consider first this morning the need of the Spirit. The need of the Holy Spirit of the Lord, of God. It says that Jesus was led up by was the Spirit of God who had just descended upon him at his baptism, who was alighting upon him. It is a prophetic fulfillment, even of the words of Isaiah, found in a number of places in Isaiah, about the Spirit of God uh, descending upon the Christ, upon the Messiah. I'll read just one of them, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. All of those in the New King James, I believe rightly, with a capital S referring to this Holy Spirit who came upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity, descending and alighting upon the second person of the Trinity. And there is great mystery in all of this that we're going to be 
that we're all going to be hitting on this morning as we think of this trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Father's will being accomplished in the life of the Son through His power of the Spirit. So, so just don't try to fully wrap your mind around it, but follow along with what the Word of God leads us to understand here. For the Spirit of God, the third person of the, of the Trinity, has, has come upon who is fulfilling in obedience the will of the Father who sent Him that will lead Him to Calvary. I said it last week, and I think it's a very good and true statement, that God sent the Son, that the Son is, is willingly obeying this will of the Father to give His life a ransom for the sins of, of His people. And now the Spirit comes in, and the Spirit's occupation, His job, is to enable, to lead, to power, even to empower, even to carry Jesus to the cross. That He might fulfill the mission that God has called Him to fulfill. The Spirit gave testimony to the divine sonship of Jesus. Romans eight fourteen through 17 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And he's speaking in application to you and I who are given the same Spirit of God at salvation. That as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit of God and children and heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. The Spirit here confirms that divine proclamation from God that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit comes upon the Lord Jesus and the Spirit is the one who is going to to lead Jesus. Even as we see it described there in verse 1, Jesus was led up by Jesus. The Spirit. You know, we often focus, and we will next week, upon Jesus' use of the Word of God to withstand the temptation given by the devil. And rightly so, Jesus every time quotes God's Word. But I think often we overlook the necessity of the Spirit that precedes our standing upon the Word. The necessity of the Spirit of God to be within us and to be filling us, to be guiding us and leading us and directing us, that it's only by the power of the Spirit of God that we will come to rightly know and believe and stand upon the Word of God. And so before he quotes the Word of God, we read first that Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that he was indwelt and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And ultimately, as much as it was the Word of God that empowered him to stand against the temptations of the devil, which we will look to again next week, it was the Spirit of God that he was in submission to, that he was empowered and enabled by, that gave him that strength to stand against the temptations that were brought against him. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is a need of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives that is exemplified here, even in the pattern that Jesus has set. Jesus walking in the path that we ought to walk, that we should walk, is is being led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God. As we walk through this Gospel, you're going to see the Spirit plays a vital role in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already seen it in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Mary uh, had a baby in her womb. How? Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, Jesus is led by the Spirit after the Spirit descended upon Him. 
you move forward in this gospel, and what we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit comes to minister to Jesus and strengthen Him in seasons of, of weakness, that the Spirit comes upon the Lord Jesus to empower Him, even to perform the miracles that He performs. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21 speaks of that. That, that Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, casts out demons, Matthew 12, 28. That Hebrews 9.14 says that it was even the Spirit who strengthened Jesus upon the cross to endure the agonies and afflictions of the crucifixion. That Hebrew or Romans 8 and verse 11 says that it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And so God has set this uh, the life of His Son that, that the Spirit is needed to rightly follow God, to rightly obey God, to stand against temptation, to accomplish the will of God that is set before us. And hear me, if the Son of God needed the Spirit of both the will of God, how much more so do you and do me? We need to be filled with the Spirit of God if we have any hope or desire of truly living the life that God is calling for us to live, to accomplish the purpose that God has placed in our life, God has set before us His will for our lives. We need the Spirit of God. We must be led by the Spirit of God. And that posed a great question to me even this week. Lord, how do I, how do I live a life filled with Your Spirit, led by Your Spirit? We won't look at all the verses of Scripture, but the Word of God is clear that, that when you become a believer, a child of God, you are sealed and indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. He is within you. But being indwelt by the Spirit of God does not mean that you're filled with the Spirit of God. But God's Spirit is in you and will never leave you, never forsake you. God has promised and obtained and secured your salvation. That Spirit of God within you is the seal of that salvation that He will open someday to validate, authenticate you are truly His. But that does not mean in your daily walk with the Lord, in your daily life, that you are filled with His Spirit, that you're being led by His Spirit. What does it take to be led by the Spirit? I think the answer simply is a daily submission to Him. A daily acknowledgement of your need for God the Spirit. And a daily submission to pray, Lord, not my will, but thine be done, as Jesus will pray here very soon in a garden. As he exemplifies even in his baptism and even in going to this wilderness. A heart of submission before the Lord to the Spirit of God by which in that act of, of humble submission, obedience follows, and, and God gives to us a filling of His Spirit as we seek to submit to Him, as we acknowledge our need for Him, and as we seek to obey His will, His Word in our life, God graciously gives to us His Spirit to fill us, to enable us, to lead us, to do that which He's commanded we ought to do, to make of us that which He desires of us to be. Don't read through this and move so quickly to the, the quoting of the Word of God. Rest in verse 1 for a moment this morning and realize this all began by the Spirit of God leading the Son of God. The Spirit of God enabling, equipping, empowering the Son of God. Second, let us consider also the perplexity of the wilderness. Only the need of the Spirit, but the perplexity of the wilderness. If we believe what we just acknowledged, that it is the Spirit's upon Christ that led Him to this place, we must step back for a moment and say, why in the world would the Spirit of God 
first lead Jesus to a wilderness with the intent purpose of being tempted by the devil? Shouldn't he lead him to a mountaintop? Shouldn't he lead him to a manifestation of all of his healing powers? You know, there is, all that's going to happen. But first, it's to a wilderness, literally a desert. A desert region, whether it was east or west of the Jordan where Jesus was baptized, we do not know. But, but he went out either direction as desert. Either direction as a place that's not habitable. And Jesus likely, perhaps went this direction, being led of the Spirit in order to get a little bit of, of solitude, to meditate upon God, even for this time of fasting before the Father. But, but the Spirit's intent, all the while, it says, is, is Jesus is led into this place in order to be tempted by the devil. It's an intent purpose that is given here. God does not tempt anyone, the Scriptures tell us. Hey, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so temptation is not ever of God. However, God uses the temptation of the devil. Does he not? He's sovereign even over the schemes of Satan. And Satan thinking he will do this or accomplish that, that will thwart the plan of God. And all the while, the, the sovereign purposes of God are standing, even through the sinful actions of Satan and the sinful actions of man. That is a, a teaching of God's Word evidenced over and over and over and over and over again in every page of the Word of God. And here we see the same. Though God is never the author of temptation, God often uses temptation to accomplish His purposes. And when we speak of God's acting in that, we always use the word testing or trying. And so God tests us. He tries us. There's a big difference. Temptation has an end goal of failure, has an end goal of falling. Testing is a means of His inside. Testing, ultimately in the heart of God, has an end goal of success, an end goal of validating what is right in the inside. It's just as if we were... A, teacher of a class and giving a test to the students. A teacher's desire shouldn't be that they fail. A test merely reveals what they have learned, where they are currently, and, and it reveals the truth that they know and understand or that they don't understand, and the test can just as much validate the knowledge of that student as much as it can validate the fact that they don't know nothing and hadn't been listening at all to you. A test reveals. It's revelatory. God uses the temptations of Satan to reveal things about us and to reveal something here even about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why James also writes just a few verses prior to the verse we just read about God not tempting anyone. In verse 2 of that same chapter, chapter 1, James writes and says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various testings, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so God, God permits Satan, the devil, to tempt Jesus, his son. And he does so purposefully. The Spirit of God led him to this wilderness for this very reasoning, for this very occasion. And what does it validate? What does it declare to us? That Jesus is perfect, sinless Son of God. I like what Wearsby wrote 
on this verse. He says, Jesus was not tempted so that the Father could learn anything about His Son. For the Father had already given Jesus His divine approval. Jesus was tempted so that every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might know that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. He exposed Satan and his tactics, and he defeated Satan. Because of his victory, we can have victory over the tempter also. You realize here that the great act of obedience and the submission that Jesus had to the Holy Spirit did not insulate him from the wilderness in a season of temptation. There's great truth and application for us here this morning. Just because you follow the Lord and and believers' baptism, you're saved, you you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many around us in our American culture with this prosperity gospel that's so prevalent that, that make us want to believe that when we come to Jesus, it's a life of ease and a life of blessing and a life of prosperity. And that's not at all what God promises in this life. As evidenced even in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, most that following this baptism and this, this magnificent proclamation of His Sonship and the Father being pleased with Him, following it is immediately a wilderness experience where He's tempted by Satan himself to realize that great spiritual awakenings in your life do not always mean great blessing and prosperity to follow. Often the opposite. That God now puts you to the test. That God now gives a manifestation of His grace at work in and through you where you enter a wilderness experience, where the temptations of, of trial and <laughs> unexpected incidents and accidents, things in life that we never foresee, that, that happen to us and we don't understand the reasoning in our, our little finite understandings of our life, like that, that you have to step back and, and let this passage even be a comfort to you to say, you know what? Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. God's led me into this wilderness. God's at work through this wilderness. God is being glorified in whatever it is that I'm walking through. Therefore, I must trust Him. I must continue serving and following Him. Don't get discouraged and frustrated when the wilderness comes. Realize that God is still sovereignly at work through it all. Spurgeon has some great words on this subject. Let me, let me read them to you. He wrote, he said, None of us can come to the highest maturity without enduring the summer heat of trials. On some few occasions, I have had troubles which I could not tell to anyone but my God, and I thank God I have, for I learned more about my Lord then than at any other time. Our troubles have always brought us blessings, and they always will. Now listen to this. He says, they are the dark chariots of bright grace. Remember that in your wilderness experience, even in your temptation, that the trials of life are the dark chariots of bright grace. The wilderness experiences of life are the dark chariots of bright grace. And then he says, stars may be seen at the bottom of a deep well when they cannot be discerned from the top of a mountain. That sometimes in the darkness, in agony of being in a deep pit, a deep well, looking up because of the light that is blocked, the stars of the sky may be seen that never could be seen on the mountaintop. What an illustration. What a picture 
of God's work in and through us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the wilderness. God is giving us a, a sight, a perception that we never would come to know it if not for that experience of trial. The need of the Spirit, the perplexity of the wilderness, notice lastly, thirdly, the vindication of the Christ. But ultimately this is written and given to us to tell us something about Jesus, to teach us some truth about the Lord and Savior that we worship. Jesus was tempted the devil, and we read the Achem next week, three out of three times, Jesus was the victor, was he not? Three out of three times, Jesus overcame. Jesus withstood the temptation. Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, quoted the word of the Spirit, the word of God, and he stood firm in obedience to the will of the Father who had sent him. There's a, a vindication of his deity here. Notice just three truths about him. First, Jesus is our sinless Savior. He's our sinless Savior. Now, I want to back up from the text for a moment and, and look at it canonically. Look at it in the light of Genesis to Revelation and, and hopefully lead you to see some parallels that, that Matthew and God's Word is pointing us to here. Okay, Jesus is tempted by Satan. That ought to ring a bell in our head of, of the very beginning, Genesis three especially of the temptation of Adam and Eve. Okay, Jesus is called the last Adam, the second Adam. Jesus has now come to represent what man ought to be, to live the life that we should live. And we look to Adam, and Adam was tempted by Satan, and Adam fell. And from Adam came sin and death and all the wages of sin that this world has been cursed by. Jesus, the second Adam now, is being tempted by that same serpent. By that same tempter, only Jesus does not succumb. Jesus does not fail. Jesus overcomes. Jesus stands against the temptation. Jesus vindicates his righteousness. That he truly is the human that Adam should have been but failed to be. That he is the second Adam. Not only the second Adam, but he's also being portrayed here as the true Israel. The true and better Israel. If you go back a few chapters in Matthew, just uh, I think it's Matthew 1 even, where Matthew weirdly quotes of Jesus going down into Egypt with his parents and coming back to reside in the land of Galilee. He quotes Hosea, a, a, a strange word from Hosea to quote, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And Matthew is setting up a picture here of, of Jesus being a, a, a fulfillment of all the covenant promises, even of Israel, that Israel failed to meet, that Israel failed to be. Israel, if you think of their history, there's a parallel here, undoubtedly. Israel was led out of Egypt, and they passed through the waters. They passed through the Red Sea. And immediately following their passing through the waters is the wilderness experience. They're in the wilderness, and they're tempted there. They're running out of water. They're running out of food. And what did they do? They failed. They turned and complained against God and against Moses and God, we'd have been better off left as slaves in Egypt and to come out here and thirst to death. Well, what are you doing? Why? They, they failed a little bit of temptation after the grand miracles that God had worked for them. And yet Jesus, having fasted for 40 days, not in a wilderness for 40 years, for 40 days tempted, but He stands against the temptation. He overcomes the temptation. Matthew is showing us parallels that where Adam fell, 
failed. Jesus has succeeded. He is our sinless Savior. He is the one we need. He is the one who is complete, perfect righteousness before the Father, whose righteousness we need if we have any hope of being justified before a holy God. Not only is He the sinless Savior, but notice also Jesus is priest. Hebrews Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's a great, profound mystery here. That God, who cannot be tempted by evil, in the form of God the Son, is actually being tempted to do evil. You realize the mystery here, that Jesus is God incarnate, but He is the Son who has taken on human flesh. He he had skin and blood and bones and needs and desires and hungers and thirsts just as you and I do now. Jesus hungered 40 days of fasting. And Satan throws before him a lust of the flesh. Act outside of God's plan for your life. You've got the power. You can fulfill your desires apart from His will, His providential care over you. Make these stones become bread and eat of them. And for the first time in the in, in eternity god the son experiences temptation there's a divine profound mystery there that the one who could never be tempted because he was god in all the glory of and splendor of heaven who never had any needs never had any wants never had any desires that were not fulfilled in his sovereign power and sovereign just providence here here the son is actually experiencing want. He's experiencing physical anguish and physical understands now in a way that even the father, apart from his experience through the son, could not understand what it is to experience weakness, what it is to be tempted, what it is to have that option of going against the will of the father to fulfill your desires in a way that's apart from his word, apart from his will. We do not have a high priest who does not understand the plight and the plight of human weakness and even the plight of temptation itself. Therefore, he's sympathetic to us. He's compassionate to us in our in our sins even when we fail and when we falter and when we go astray. He understands the pull that Satan has over our sinful hearts. Though he, the sinless Son of God, he experienced temptation. We have a sympathetic high priest. And therefore, verse 16 of Hebrews 4 continues, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Christ's compassion and even this experience of the temptations that he, he walks through, he can say, I know where you are. I know what you're facing. Trust me. I'm here with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Here is my grace. Here is my mercy to lead you through. Not only is he our sinless Savior, vindicated here, our sympathetic high priest, but lastly also he is our example and pattern. We won't spend much time at all on this point because that's going to be the subject of next week's uh, sermon. That Jesus sets here before us a pattern, an example for us to follow. Now it's not for unbelievers to follow this pattern as if we can make ourselves right by living the life of Jesus. No man in our sinfulness can ever live the life of Jesus, but it's for believers who have been forgiven, who've been freed from the bondage of sin, given the Spirit of God, even Christ within us, the hope of glory. He now lives His life out through us, and we are now empowered and enabled to follow in His footsteps and to overcome temptation just as He overcame temptation because He's at work in and through us. 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Billy Graham had a good saying that the will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. The will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. What we see in this passage, this example even of Jesus, is that that grace that God gives to sustain us is found in His Spirit and through His Spirit. So much so that we can say the will of God will never take us where the Spirit of God will not keep us, will not guide us and empower us and and enable us that in the wilderness, in the season of temptation, or whether we're on the mountaintop in a season of blessing, we need God's Spirit to keep us to deliver us. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord, and I pray that every believer in this room would recognize our need for Your Spirit to be upon us each and every moment of our lives. That, Lord, we would even now be praying prayers confession of sin, of repentance, of of asking you, Lord, fill us with your spirit. We surrender to you. We submit to your will in our lives. We ask of you, lead us, guide us, direct us, keep us, sustain us. May every believer have that heart of humility before you in this invitation. Lord, I do beg more than all if there be one here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that now, even now, they would turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus, who is only hope who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is our righteousness, may they find that He alone can save. That what He did for them in His life and His death, His burial and resurrection, is available to them. That He is a sympathetic high priest, wanting, willing, ready to forgive any sinner who comes. Lord, save the lost, I ask in Jesus' precious name.